to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. With me, as always, is my co-host, Robert Zirk. On today's show, the Manitoba Philanthropy Awards are taking place tonight. We'll hear from the recipient of the Outstanding Professional Fundraiser Award, Joan Blight, and she'll join us in studio to talk about the distinction, as well as the importance of giving back to our community. Then, a new book focused on community-based research uses Winnipeg projects to show how practitioners are taking cues from the community and affecting real change. RC360's producer Stacey Cardigan-Smith sat down with Diane Rusin, director of the Winnipeg Boldness Project, who contributed to the book. Then our very own Sonny Primolo will speak with Wendy McDonald, Executive Director from Urban Stable, to learn how the program is positively affecting youth and building responsibility through taking care of real live horses. Then, on Keeping with the Animal theme, Dr. James Duncan, who is the founder and director of Discover Owls, is going to join us via telephone. He's going to be bringing Oscar, a great grey owl, to Winnipeg next week for the Women's Canadian Club of Winnipeg's luncheon that's taking place at the RBC Convention Centre this coming Tuesday. And finally, the Jubilee Fund is a new approach to giving back to the community by ethical investing in social enterprises. We'll speak with Mark Adams, the president of the Jubilee Fund, to explain their approach and how they're helping nonprofit organizations in our city. We've got all this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode episode of River City 360. Hello and welcome to River City 360. Nolan over here, Robert over there. How are you doing this fine day, Roberto? I'm doing well, Nolan. How are you? I'm good. It's always good to sit down and produce a little episode of River City 360 for the people out there. Fun to be uh, fun to be alive today. You know, it's just a good, good old day, middle of November, halfway through November already, which is kind of crazy. 2018 is already winding down. 2019 on the horizon. Pretty soon it'll be Barbara Walters 2020. Wow. Upon us. <laughs> when you say it like that, it seems like every time is just going by <laughs> so quickly. It is. And you know what? We don't have that much time. Today, we have so much show to get to. There's uh, five different interviews that we're going to be bringing our listeners today. So you know what? We always kick off the show with a song. So Robert, what have you got for us today? Well, in light of talking about the Manitoba Philanthropy Awards that are happening this evening, here's Frankie Valley with To Give, The Reason I Live, right here on River City 360. To give is the reason I live To give all I can give in return For the life that I earn to 
Justified I exist To be scribed on the list Of someone With a place In the sun Here I stand Reaching out for the for listening to River City 360. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined in studio by Joan Blight. She is the president and managing consultant and founder of Strategic Philanthropy, and she's also an award winner for the Outstanding Professional Fundraiser from the Manitoba Philanthropy Awards happening Thursday, the 15th of November. Joan, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So you have helped hundreds of organizations across Manitoba, Canada, and the States with philanthropy and, and with a strategic approach to it. So I guess my first question is, where does your drive come from? Like, where do you find the inspiration to, uh, to support all these organizations with philanthropy? Well, my inspiration is from seeing the difference that's made in communities about getting people involved, engaged, uh, you know, whether it's in being serving as a volunteer, whether it's giving, and it is about making a difference. Seeing that impact, I guess, is what totally inspires you for totally. sure. So you've worked in, I read, Calgary, Toronto, Winnipeg. Now, what are some of the differences between Manitoba-based giving and sort of out east or out west or even down south or anywhere? Like, how does Manitoba differ from different parts of the country or the world? Well, my sense is that giving in Manitoba is more broad-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that, I think, reflects the economy here because we are so diversified as an economy, as in that sense. But also, it's a pretty small uh, town by comparison, right. a small city, and people know one another. And in terms of leadership, uh, I think in some respects, it's easier to engage leadership here mm-hmm. in just because of the size of community. They're just more accessible, right? They are more accessible. Um, But there were also, I was in those cities a long time ago, and there were some major differences. When I went to Calgary, it was at the time of an oil turndown, and so people were very concerned about raising funds. In fact, they had set the United Way goal 
lower than it had been the previous than what they'd raised the previous year. Just because of how the economy was, they were downturn? concerned, okay. and I said there is no way. So, I started on July first, and I said we cannot go out to the community asking for less money than was raised last year because right. the needs aren't, you know. Yeah, the needs aren't changing; no. or going down. For and sure. so I demonstrated through analysis um, that in fact we could raise what was needed. So they agreed by the end of the summer, the cabinet to set the goal at the same amount as had been raised, and we exceeded that. You spend a lot of time helping others figure out their strategy for philanthropy, but what's what's near and dear to your heart? What are, what are some causes that you can get behind and really enjoy supporting? What, what makes your heart swell with pride when you see uh, that cause being supported? Well, there's more probably many. Many. Yeah. Uh, there's no question. Yeah. Um, first and foremost is is the social service area in terms of I just believe there's so many people that need help uh, and if they can get connected with a program or service that helps them, that that's really remarkable because you can see significant changes mm-hmm. in people's lives For because sure. of that. Yeah. Um, I'm also very committed to the special needs area. Mm-hmm. I've worked with an organization in Winnipeg called Gaining Resources Our Way, oh, cool. and they work with young adults uh, on the, you know, who are in transitional t- period of time, and it's uh, it's been remarkable the changes that have been seen there. So, yeah. but. I also love the arts, needless to say, whether sure. it's music or ballet or theater, uh, which I'm a member. And I've, I've also worked and am committed to higher education. There's so many great Healthcare. organizations and things in the city to support. Like, Well, there are. And I've worked across all the sectors, except um, I have not done much in sport and recreation. Mm-hmm. And I made a decision a long time ago. I wouldn't work in political activity because uh, that's not charitable. I understand <laughs> that for sure. So we talked a little bit about trends, but what are some of the trends that you're kind of seeing in the charitable sector these days when it comes to maybe millennials or when it comes to the senior population? Like, where do you see things kind of shifting? Well, a big concern is that the number of donors is decreasing, but giving right. is increasing, meaning fewer people are giving more. Mm-hmm. And that's not the kind of trend you ever want to see, right? right? But the the reality now is that there are so many other things to give to. And I think millennials do want to be involved, and and I believe they give. But if you look at other opportunities just for GoFundMe pages, you know, for different causes that are not necessarily charitable, whatever, but still very worthy... I think there's lots of giving going on, but it doesn't get counted in terms of right. the kind of, uh, in terms of what what's counted in the reports that uh, I read around the research and giving. So how does that affect your work if you if you know that there's giving that's happening, but it's not included in the sort of statistics? Like how do you uh, how do you adjust your what you're doing? Uh, still, in my view, this the, the very best uh, advice you can give to any organization is to strive for excellence and do the very best that they can in providing the services and programs because that's what ultimately... And the people will find you. If you build it, they will come, right? Well, to a degree. I mean, you have to... There's multi-channel giving now, you know. But most of the organizations, which are smaller, are not equipped to do all those kinds of things. And so they need to select what they can do and to do it well. And that's always my advice is to, to start small, but do what you're doing very well. Right. And then expand. It's far worse to go broad and not do it well. Right. Try to be everything to all people. Yeah. And then, yeah, you end up not being anything to anyone. Yeah. What do you want your legacy to be? Um, that's a very tough question for me. It's just I think that I've um, devoted my life to philanthropic giving 
and philanthropy as a whole in terms of its very critical role in our world in creating a civil society and contributing to Canadian society in a way that's very meaningful. Well said. Well, one way that you're going to be uh, sort of celebrated on Thursday is uh, you're winning. You have won the Outstanding Professional Fundraiser Award. What, how did you feel when you first heard that this was going to be a, a distinction that you'd be gaining? Well, I was stunned at first when I was asked. Uh, if I, First of all, if I could let my name stand. And uh, it, it just truly is an honor. Um, I, I was very pleased. Uh, I know it's the outstanding fundraiser of 2018 but for me it's a lifetime achievement sure. i mean 40 <laughs> years plus yes. right yeah. yeah and so uh, i think it's as i say i feel very honored well congratulations on the award we will see you at the dinner at the lunch on thursday november the 15th at the manitoba philanthropy awards joan blight president and managing consultant with strategic philanthropy if you go to strategic philanthropy.ca you can find out more information there and she can help you out with anything you could possibly need when in the world of philanthropy joan thank you so much for talking to us today thank you for this opportunity thanks nolan And as was mentioned, the Manitoba Philanthropy Awards are happening tonight, Thursday, November 15th. So if you're listening on Saturday during our repeat broadcast, the event has already taken place. But if you'd like to find out more information about the awards, you can visit the Association of Fundraising Professionals website at community.afpnet.org. Coming up after the break, a new book that's helping to make real change here in Winnipeg through community input is on the shelves, and our very own Stacey Cardigan-Smith was at the launch earlier this week to learn all about it. We'll hear her conversation with Diane Rusin, the director of the Winnipeg Boldness Project, but first, here are the new seekers with I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, right here on River City 360. I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with
Those were the new seekers with I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, and you are listening here to River City 360 with Robert and Nolan on 93.7 CJNU. A new book focused on community-based participatory research uses Winnipeg projects to show how practitioners are taking cues from the community and affecting real change. The book is edited by University of Winnipeg Associate Professor and Department of Urban and Inner City Studies Chair Shauna McKinnon and features a variety of Manitoba Research Alliance projects. RC360 producer Stacy Cardigan-Smith sat down with Diane Rusin, the director of the Winnipeg Boldness Project, who contributed a chapter to the book. That chapter focused on Diane's work with CLOUT, which is Community-Led Organizations United Together, which was a coalition of nine community-based organizations serving the inner city. Diane started by discussing her role in the inner city and how that led to her work with the book. I would say that my role has been somebody who's been working in the inner city, working in the community for my whole uh, career. And I have worked alongside a number of other very sophisticated, smart, wise uh, people who really taught me the ins and outs of how to work with families. And so that wisdom, that knowledge, that way of working with our families, I think is so incredibly powerful. And I think it's the thing that leads to you know, the best outcomes for our families. And so, um, you know, we've had this relationship with uh, researchers over time. And one of those researchers is Shauna McKinnon, who is the editor of the book. And, uh, you know, she really wanted to work with us in a different way. And she really wanted to try to capture this way that we were working. And so that's how, you know, the conversation started. And next thing you know, it it ends up being a book. (laughs) So what is community-based research? The simplest way that I can define community-based research is um, a a way of going about the research that really puts community at center, it really centers the, the wisdom, the knowledge that we have in community, and then it 
also involves community all along the way and throughout all aspects of the research. Why is it important like for, for community to, what does that community involvement give to the research and why is that important? Well, I think that most research is usually trying to reach a certain kind of a, an end, you know, so we're trying to understand something, we're trying to uh, get better at something. And I think that when we're trying to research things that are happening in the community, we have to really um, go right to the direct source if we want the most informed, practical, insightful kinds of information, then we got to go right to the source. I think that that was a really interesting part of today's discussion. The whole idea that so much of um, so much of the the information is kind of passed amongst generations, um, but it might not always. Um, it's not always written. Like a lot of it's all oral, right? And so, tell me about the idea of putting that actually down and working with a university researcher as community-based practitioners and the importance of that. Well, again, I think that, um, you know, we know we need to write our stuff down more. We know that when we're, we, we know how to do the practice of it and we're really good at doing the practice of it. But if we want that kind of practice to reach bigger audiences and if we want that kind of practice to be more, um, you know, prevalent throughout society, we know we need to write some stuff down so that other people can access it in that written way. And someone like Shauna came along and was willing to work with us in the way that we wanted to, to be worked with. She was willing to take our direction. You know, we told her what we wanted to, to you know, sort of what it is exactly we wanted written down. We told her, you know, it is, and it isn't just about the writing down. It's how we go about writing it down. You know, there still has to be capacity building in our community by writing it down. So she was so open to hiring our community, training our community to do all their interviews, to do all the research, to do the coding and so on and so forth. And, and that was really important to us as well. It wasn't just the outcome of a chapter, but it was how we got there and all the um, capacity and community building that, that happened as a result of, of uh, writing this chapter or bringing this chapter to life. So tell me about um, from the work that kind of went into this chapter and that that experience, how has that influenced your work today with the Boldness Project? Well, you know, it was a really good experience to work with researchers and to really understand that side of um, of of knowledge generation, knowledge transfer, if I can say that. Again, I would character, characterize myself as a pract, you know, a person who does practice, a practitioner. And so I'm not, my skills don't lie so much in the writing of it down. And so really being able to learn from Shauna all the ins and outs of what goes into making a book, you know, what goes into editing a chapter, what goes into a book launch, you know, and then what happens to the book after is, that's all been learning for me. And so it really has helped me and shaped me into what I'm into the current role that I'm in, which is the Winnipeg Boldness Project, which is a social research and development um, initiative. And so really centering, again, the community wisdom and the research we're doing there. And so some of the roots of, of uh, what we're doing is in the book. And some of the roots of what we're doing was talked about today on the panel. And ultimately, like, I mean, you kind of got at this, but why does it matter? Like, why... One of the comments that was made is um, sometimes um, somebody will come up and how how do you how do you get community buy-in? Like they'll have a plan or a project that, or a program that they want to implement, and they want to get community buy-in. But what you're talking about is 
totally different. It's grassroots led. Can you talk a little bit about that and ultimately like why is that so important? So I guess the way I, if I can go take it from the biggest picture possible, you know, I think all of us in some way, shape or form are trying to make things better for society, right? So, you know, we all get up every day and we come to our to our jobs and, and to our volunteer experiences and we're trying to make things better. And so in this inner city, you know, there's a whole bunch of us that are, you know, really focused on trying to make things better for, for families and for kids. We know that there's a lot of work going on out there that we think isn't very good for families and kids, um, and yet they are there are systems out there, there are services, resources, uh, different things out there that we think are supposed to be designed for the families and kids and for their betterment, but it, but they actually aren't. And, and, and in the worst case scenario, they're actually being harmful to the kids and the families. So that's the outset. So when we talk about working in a particular way in the North End, we think that that way of working is what families and children want. And so we're, 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 we've been really good at delivering that kind of resource and service for families. And now we are challenged with trying to write that down so that others can learn how to do the work with our families in that same way. And so, and again, you know, for, for folks who think they're maybe not having the kind of outcomes that they want when they're working with families and kids, that maybe they now have a resource or they know of some folks that they can turn to and ask for, you know, some insights or some advice, or maybe we can work together on something to figure out how to do this better for our kids and our families. And really, in the end, that's what it's all about. It's, and, and I mean, it makes economic sense in the end too, right? Because you can throw money at a problem, but if the community isn't responding, then what's the point? Right. Okay. Anything else you want to add? Well, and just the point you just made there, you know, in the worst case scenario, we are putting a lot of money, resources, economics into complex, wicked systems that aren't actually helping families, that are actually making it worse and exacerbating the challenges, which then in turn has a costs us more, right, as taxpayers, and then B, is having worse outcomes for our families and our kids, like in that our families and our kids are, are, are not getting better, you know, things are getting worse for them. So, so yeah, so for a whole bunch of reasons, it makes sense that we would maybe try to do things differently and try to do things in a way that our community is asking for us to do it, right? If, if people, you know, and, and in business world, we talk about customer is always right, you know, we talk about person-centered design or, you know, user-centered design. That's what this, I think this research is trying to, um, the point this research is trying to make. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your insight today and uh, congratulations on the book. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you for coming and thank you for even being interested. We always appreciate that. Thanks, Stacey. That was RC360's producer, Stacey Cardigan-Smith, in conversation with Diane Rusin. Diane is an advocate for Winnipeg's inner city, and she recently contributed a chapter to that new book about community-based participatory research. The book published by UBC Press is called Practicing Community-Based Participatory Research, Stories of Engagement, Empowerment, and Mobilization. It's a mouthful for sure. Diane is currently director of the Winnipeg Boldness Project and a friend of the show here at RC360. Coming up next, our very own Sunny Promolo sat down with Wendy McDonald. She's the executive director of Urban Stable. And they talked about how youth are taking care of horses, actually, in within the city limits. By, and that helps them to learn a bit about responsibility and appreciation for what must be some pretty hard work. But before we get to that conversation... We're talking about urban stables, we're talking about horses, so here's Cliff Noble with The Horse, right here on RC360.
Thank you for listening to River City 360. I'm Sonny Promolo, and with me today is Wendy McDonald, Executive Director for Urban Stable. Welcome to the show. Thank you. First off, what is Urban Stable? Urban Stable is an organization that works with youth to keep them engaged in school and their communities. So it's about working with horses and all of those skills that you learn while doing that to keep you engaged in school and community. Why did we choose horses over anything else? Horses are pretty amazing animals. I like to say they're magical, really. Um, There's so many immediate things that you learn with horses just naturally by working with them. So it's the building of confidence, learning to have a calm assertiveness in your approach to a number of things. There's just so many areas that the kids learn to put those into action and then be able to take that back to school and home life and community life and just by the confidence that they build. So speaking of confidence, that's just one of the um, benefits of Urban Stable. Can you tell us a little bit of the other benefits that uh, provides? The benefits are unlimited. There's just so many things that you learn. I mean, you're connecting with a live animal and you're part of a team with the animal, but you're also becoming the leader because you're making the decisions on where you're going to go and you're learning how to communicate with them. So it's like communication skills, social skills, emotional skills, and being in a place where you're learning that's safe and non-judgmental. You're learning teamwork with your horse, but also with the other youth. You see the kids support each other. You see the kids share, oh, this was really hard for me when I started, but don't worry, like stick with it and you're going to get it. And so it's like, they learn not to give up and like they just there's just so many things that they learn and you see it they're challenged like this is not often easy stuff that they have to do but they love being here and they love being with the horses and they see that if you work hard and you try and you engage and you are a little vulnerable in a place where they can feel comfortable to be that then there's so much that you learn. There's just layers of things that the kids learn. But with the why horses, that's it. It's through that natural learning. So there's so many opportunities that you can pull from. But it's by that natural working with the horses. And the horses want that. They choose to have us ride them. How are children selected to partake in the program? They're selected by their schools, generally usually a team that um, will be like the counselors and people helping student services at individual schools. Um, And it's generally about kids that may have struggles in a wide range. So just any kind of challenges and whether it's academic, whether it's social, emotional, any of those kind of things, engagement in school, they may be dealing with anxiety or depression, they could have ADHD or be on the autism spectrum, they may have loss and trauma or just so many varieties and they're coming for the learning and to benefit from this and allow them to be more engaged and connected with people, communities and their and their schools. So they see that we all have things that we have to work on at different times. And if we can get through them, then we can keep getting through whatever comes our way. And 
that's pretty neat. <laughs> what are the different ways that people can support you? Um, so our website is www.urbanstable.ca. Uh, you can email us at urbanstable at shaw.ca. And um, you can call at 204-891-2574. And there's many ways to get involved. So volunteer roles we have all over, which volunteering directly in the program, but also volunteering to help at maybe a fundraising event or a board position or a committee position, different things like that. Um, And then, of course, through our fundraising events is also a way is coming out to some of our annual events. Um, Signing up for our e-newsletter would help you learn more about those things as they're happening. And then, of course, through donations, um, we are uh, hooked up with Canada Helps, so you can donate directly online through Canada Helps. And we do a few campaigns, uh, like a holiday campaign will be coming up. And anytime you want to make a donation, you can go online and do it, or you can mail in a donation. Um, you can call anytime to get more information about any of that and how you would like to help out Um I'd love to talk to anybody anytime. (laughs) Thank you very much, Wendy. Thank you. Thanks, Sonny. And as we move on from horses to owls now, our next guest is Dr. James Duncan, and he's the founder of Discover Owls. He's also going to be the guest speaker at the Women's Canadian Club of Winnipeg's luncheon next week, and he'll be bringing a live great gray owl named Oscar to the event for a little meet and greet. We'll learn about owls from Dr. Duncan as well as how you can meet Oscar face-to-face this Tuesday. Before we get to that, though, seeing as how we're going to be discovering owls in our next segment, here is Kay Kaiser and his orchestra with The Wise Old Owl, right here on River City 360. When the wise old owl in the old oak tree says... Sully Mason, tell him about the owl, boy. When we strolled through the moonlight, you said, I love you. But the wise old owl in the old oak tree just says, who, who, who. You said I was that someone that you sing those love songs to. But the wise old owl, as he winked his eye, just says, who, who, who. Though I never thought that you'd say goodbye, that old bird must have known. Honey, that tonight he and I would be under that moon alone. Maybe I'll find a new love, that's what I should do. But the wise old owl in the old oak tree just says, who, 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 who.
better tell him again. But the wise old owl in the old oak tree just says, who? Thank you for listening to River City 360. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined via telephone by a very special guest. Uh, We have Dr. James Duncan. He's the founder of Discover Owls, which is a group focused on education, conservation, and research on owls here in Manitoba. Dr. Duncan, thank you for joining us. Hi, Nolan. So we wanted to have you on the program because you are an owl expert, uh, but also because you're going to be speaking at the Up Close and Personal with Manitoba Owls uh, luncheon event that's taking place uh, this or next Tuesday, November 20th, at the RBC Convention Centre, and that's in support of the uh, Women's Canadian Club of Winnipeg. But I guess my first question is, you are the owl expert, but why why owls? Why did you decide to devote your life to uh, this beautiful creature? Well, you know, over 30 years ago, um, when I was looking for research to do on uh, wildlife, I was examining the literature, and uh, I felt like owls were very underrepresented, or we knew very little about them. And so I thought, well, here's an opportunity to uh, study an interesting kind of wildlife, and also one that's a little challenging because a lot of owls are active at night, and one that a lot of people haven't studied, uh, hadn't studied at that point. And so it just seemed like a really neat opportunity to, to push the boundaries of our knowledge. So you started Discover Owls, and you've been researching great gray owls and other owls for over 30 years. You're obviously an expert in the, in the subject. What, what are you going to be talking about at the Up Close and Personal with Manitoba Owls luncheon uh, later this next week? What, like, give me a little sneak peek, just sort of a, a brief sneak peek of what you're going to be talking about. Sure. I'm, I'm going to be focused uh, initially on the great gray owl, which is Manitoba's provincial bird, official provincial bird. And um, the bit about how the work got started in Manitoba, some of the brief, brief history, some of the key players here who created the opportunity for me to move to Manitoba from Quebec to study owls, and then uh, start proceeding by just starting to unfold the layers of uh, information on this species. And it, some of it's quite surprising. I mean, it's the largest owl in North America, yet it only weighs between two and three pounds. And... Uh, it has a distribution that's uh, circumpolar, or you know, right around the upper part of the globe, uh, in Europe, Asia, North America, uh, and then down into the U.S. in the montane regions, and how its biology and ecology varies. So it's quite a, a building up of a, a story on the species here, and then also letting people know, you know, there's other, there's 11 other species in Manitoba. And um, we're starting to learn a little bit more about some of those as well. But the amazing thing is that there are some species that we just barely have scratched the surface on here. For sure. What, what's, what's something for the average person when it comes to education and conservation that you would like just the general populace to know about the Great Greys or about owls in general? Well, I, st- I also start off with uh, a bit of a, a romp through the forest and bogs uh, and ha- habitats of Manitoba. And I take people on a journey uh, through a very short video I put together, and we visit four kinds of owls uh, and their nests in Manitoba. And the key points there are, you know, two of the four species that I selected uh, require pristine wild habitats that need our protection. And two of the species that I feature actually are very well adapted to human-altered landscapes, so they sometimes nest right in their own backyards 
yet we aren't always aware that they're there because they're so um, cryptic, uh, well-camouflaged, secretive. And uh, it, so it's quite a surprise for people to find out that uh, owls are right on their doorstep. Absolutely. So attendees at the event on Tuesday, November 20th uh, at 11 a.m. are going to get to meet Oscar, which is a live great gray owl. Uh, and they're, wh- how are they going to be able to interact with Oscar? And, and tell me a little bit about Oscar. What's, what's her story? Sure. She was a, a young bird in a nest in 2017. And that year there was a, uh, a natural uh, drop in the prey population. And so all of the nests that were active that year didn't produce young. Uh, They failed between the egg and the nestling stage. And that's kind of a cyclic natural pattern that happens every now and then. So there was one nest that uh, the adults managed to pull off, uh, raising one large chick. And something happened to the middle uh, chick. We're not sure if it died or if it was eaten. And then Oscar was the third one and the smallest one. And... Uh, it was clear that she was on her way out, that she was likely going to be lunch for her older sibling. And normally we let that take place, but uh, in this circumstance, we obtained a permit to uh, rescue that chick and raise her in captivity for both research and education. And so uh, folks will be able to meet Oscar, and it's quite something to uh, you know stand even within a couple of feet of a live great gray owl that's quite custom to people. And so it's, uh, well, I've had people describe it as, you know, she just has a way of looking right into your eyes and right into your soul. And you can't help but feel like you're so close to something just wild. Uh, and it's quite inspirational, I think, for people. Very I cool. certainly never get tired of it myself. Yeah, it's, I mean, that, and that's a rare experience for people, right? You don't often get to come face to face and nose to nose with a great gray owl. Yeah, so it's, She's uh, quite, I think people will remember her long after they forget me because <laughs> she's so <laughs> memorable. But uh, it's quite, quite neat. And Very cool. So it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's also to try to get people hooked a little more on um, having an interest in wildlife. And, you know, we tend to take care of the things we love. And so owls are a great introduction to nature for a lot of children or even people who may not have experienced nature a lot. For sure. Well, before I let you go, we, before we started recording, I understand that you are capable of uh, some actual owl, I don't know if they're mating calls or just regular calls, so I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask you to give a, give our listeners just a, a little example of, of an owl call that you can do. Sure. Well, first off, uh, just briefly, you know, a lot of people know owls to say, who, who, and uh, so, but the interesting thing is not all owls go who. So our smallest owl in Manitoba is the northern sawwet owl, and it has a, uh, it's named after the song it makes. So sawwet, you know what a saw is, and wet is W-H-E-T, which is an old English word. Like a whetstone? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so it makes a sound like, uh, like this. Some people have likened it to a garbage truck backing. Very rhythmic, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so it's more of a whistle. And then um, there's one uh, species in Manitoba that's called the barred owl, B-A-R-R-E-D, and it's uh, one of the only owls we have here regularly with dark eyes. But it's also known as the monkey owl because it's got this very uh, strange caterwauling-type call 
it kind of goes like wow so it's a rather strange call yeah if i heard that if i was camping in the woods i don't know how i would respond very cool. Well, thank you for sharing those. Those are very interesting. I'm sure um, you'll be able to do that at the event uh, this Tuesday, November 20th. Tickets are still available. If you want more information or to make reservations, you can call 204-663-5657. And that's in support of the Women's Canadian Club of Winnipeg. You're going to get to meet Oscar, uh, meet Dr. Duncan, and uh, talk about owls and the importance of education, conservation, and just the, the great gray owl here in our province. Uh, so, Dr. Duncan, thank you very much for talking to us today, and we really appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Nolan. Thanks, Nolan. Up next here on River City 360, we'll be joined in studio by Mark Adams, the president of the Jubilee Fund. The Jubilee Fund is a wonderful organization that helps fund projects here in Winnipeg that make our city a better place. And we'll learn all about it and its unique operation right now. Thank you for listening to River City 360. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined in studio by Mark Adams. He's the president of the Jubilee Fund. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So we're having you on the show because the Jubilee Fund is a pretty unique kind of an endeavor. But, uh, I mean, it's an ethical investment fund established to raise awareness concerning the issues of poverty reduction, diverse job opportunities, community engagement, and financial stability. But... You're speaking to a bit of a layman here when it comes to investing and all this stuff. So, I mean, my first question is, why is it, what is impact vesting and why is it important? So what we do is we actually provide loan guarantees for firms that are going to do things that combat poverty. And oftentimes they are nonprofits or other charities, but we do lending. Okay. And uh, we've been around since 2000 and uh, we've funded a number of projects such as uh, Merchant's Corner, uh, Tallgrass Prairie Bread Company, Pollock's Hardware, a okay. uh, whole range of daycares. We're involved with uh, Seed to help newcomers get their uh, accreditation so that they can be gainfully employed. Oh, cool. Uh, so we do a lot of things to try and help uh, families move up uh, financially to be self-sufficient and uh, eradicate poverty as best we can. Very cool. So what, what, what makes the Jubilee Fund unique compared to other um, well, financers? Most organizations, what they're doing is they're looking for grants. Mm -hmm. And what we do is unique in that we provide l loans or loan guarantees. Okay. And sometimes that's just an, the last little bit of money that's needed to bridge to other things taking place, larger financing taking place. And it, it really gives them the push to be successful financially right, and start building some credit so that down the road they can borrow money independently. So it's just that little boost to kind of raise someone up to that level that they need to be to be self-sufficient. Cool. Um, without sort of getting too deep into the nitty-gritty and into the weeds of things, how, how does it work? So you're investing the money and then you give them a loan and then they have to pay it back over a certain amount of time. They but, do. Yeah, okay. and, then, and then we're able to use our money to guarantee other loans down the road. Okay. And what we do is we raise funds in a, in a variety of ways. The, uh, we accept donations because we're a registered charity. But we also raise money through what we call JICs, Jubilee Investment Certificates. And in that form, what people do is they take a piece of their portfolio and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to invest it in the Jubilee Fund. And uh, there is some risk to it, but it's, it's good. It's, it does good things in the community. They get their money back after a three- or a five-year oh, term, okay. 
and while we have the money, we invested in the community. Gotcha. So I've heard of GICs. Is that a similar kind of a concept? Yeah, it's our, our, little, our little tag. Play on words there? Play right? on okay, words. Okay, cool. Yes. Awesome. So you mentioned a couple of the different projects. How do you find the projects that you, you're, you're choosing to help out here? Well, doing things like what we're doing today. Uh, we have uh, lots of contacts within the community in the uh, in the areas that we're trying to concentrate on. Probably a lot of word of mouth. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get the word out more and more about what the Jubilee Fund does. We have money to lend, and uh, uh, that's that's basically how we do it. So, how do organizations apply, or what what's well, how, how do they look us up on the Jubilee Fund website or uh, contact our office? Uh, we we're happy to engage in discussions with anybody about what they're up to and how we might be able to help. So it's anyone in the world of poverty reduction, just helping people get jobs, helping people sort of pick themselves up. Within Winnipeg and Manitoba. Okay, cool. So that's jubileefund.ca, J-U-B-I-L-E-E-F-U-N-D dot C-A. Why do donors choose to to invest with you and and to to, to donate? Well, because they know that it's going for, it, it, it has a multiple effect. So... Uh, for every dollar that we're lending out, there typically is four to seven dollars of other money that that enterprise is raising okay. to uh, invest uh, in whatever enterprise they're in, and so it has a multiple effect. Their dollars, and also it's local, so people want to invest in things that are going to make an impact locally. And sure. we give them the opportunity to do that. Very cool. Um, I understand there's a new sort of partnership with the Winnipeg Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about that? There is. We're, we're very excited about that. The Winnipeg Foundation has been supporting us for a number of years uh, by investing with, in uh, the Jubilee Fund. In JICs? In JICs. Okay, yeah, gotcha. And uh, they've made a new commitment to us, and we've agreed uh, for the next five years, each year that uh, we raise additional investment dollars, they will match the investment dollars that are being made by the public. Okay. So if we can increase our investments that we receive by about $100,000 this year, the Winnipeg Foundation will give us a, an additional $100,000. And that's a one-to-one match? One-to-one oh, very, match. that's great. So our plan is to raise uh, $500,000 in additional investments over the next five years, which will produce another 500000 from the from. Uh, the Winnipeg Foundation. Very cool. Uh, so I was reading on your website, um, it has a, a banner there that says ethical investing. Now, how does that differ from quote-unquote normal investing? Like, what, what's the difference? Well, you know, it's it's a hard term to, to, to really wrap your head around, but in ethical investment is we're doing the right thing. Uh, and so when we look at a loan application, you know, we look at it in detail from a financial standpoint, but we also look at it, is it the right thing for the community? Is it going to have a positive impact in the community? Will it be detrimental to anybody in the community? That's got to be considered as well. So we really look at it in a, in a different light from what a typical banker would do. For sure. How come you wanted to get into this world? Uh, well, I'm a banker by trade. I've been a banker uh, for uh, several decades. Okay. <laughs> And what I decided to do is I wanted to be involved in a charity that was small, that could make an impact, that needed some help, and would be able to use my skills in the lending side. And I've been involved in much larger charities on boards. Um, I decided that I wanted to focus on a, on a smaller one that, that, that needed me and, and that, that I could enjoy uh, providing back to the community. Is the Jubilee Fund a little more agile than sort of the bigger ones? Or like what, what, what makes a smaller one more appealing? Um, I think basically because we are able to look at projects 
uh, and you're you're close to the, the the projects that you're working on. Okay, yeah. You get a pretty good understanding of what they're doing, why they're doing it, and you get to meet some some pretty terrific people in the community doing some wonderful things. For sure. Uh, when you're on the board of a much larger charity, uh, there's not as much of that touch. More of a disconnect, yeah. I guess. Hey, yeah. So how do you feel when you're on the on the ground floor and kind of seeing all the good work being done? Uh, it makes me feel wonderful, yeah. um, and it makes me. Uh, appreciate the people that have been supporting the Jubilee Fund and and making this thing work. For sure. Well, if it, this sounds like something that you could either take advantage of if you're an organization that works in the in the area of poverty reduction, increasing people with job opportunities, community engagement, or just getting people financially stable, check out jubileefund.ca. That's J-U-B-I-L-E-E fund, all one word, dot C-A, uh, and check it out because it's a pretty unique endeavor and uh, really excited to learn about it. And thanks for stopping by. Uh, Mark Adams, the president of the Jubilee, Jubilee Fund, we appreciate your time. Thanks, Nolan. That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for tuning in today and a huge thank you to all of our guests for talking to us as well. If you'd like to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, visit us at rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, as a project of the Winnipeg Foundation, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM. And we'd love to hear your feedback about the show. If you'd like to give us a call 24-7, you can leave us a message on our listener line. The number to call is 204-944-9474, extension 360. Again, the number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. You can also find us on the web by searching at River City 360 on Twitter, or if you're on Facebook, search River City 360 on there as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell, signing off for River City 360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great day and a great weekend. Mm-hmm.